Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. Hi, Charlie. Hi. How are you? Good. Good? Are you excited to go back to school, Charlie? I like staying here a lot. You like staying here a lot? Yeah. I like having you here, but I'm really excited for you to go back to school and see all your friends. Does he actually get to go in person in Springs, or will he be at home? Charlie will have in-person school on Tuesdays and on Fridays, and then he will be working at home with me on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So we're gearing up for fall here, and that's just one aspect of the questions of what this fall is going to bring. So let's do our introductions. Hi, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. Hey, Brendan. How are you? Brendan's here too. Doing well. Brendan O'Reilly. I am the features editor. And Catherine G. Manu. Hey, Georgie. Hey, Annette. I am Catherine Manu, and I'm the co-publisher of the Express News Group and a part-time first grade teacher this fall. (laughs) (laughs) Teacher of the year. And that's Joe Shaw's voice. Hi, Joe. Hi, it's Joe Shaw, executive editor of the Express News Group. Are you having your lucky charms? I am. This is perfect timing for me to have my lucky charms every Friday. Is this the only cereal that you eat? Well, at the moment, because I went to Costco. I mean, come on. Which, you you know, 50 pounds of cereal. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I may switch next trip to Costco. So October cereal might be shredded wheat. Is that what you're saying? It, it could be any, whatever's on sale. And I'm not, I'm not a picky man. So and my name is Annette Hinkle, and I am the arts and living editor at the Express News Group. Today, we're looking at what would normally be the wind down season. We have a saying here, and probably a lot of resort towns have it, that the day after Labor Day Monday is Tumbleweed Tuesday, meaning that that's when everybody goes back to their primary residences, and it's so quiet you could see a tumbleweed blowing down Main Street. Although this year I've come up with a new phrase and I think we're going to call it WTF Wednesday, meaning (laughs) why are they still here? Because we're thinking that may be exactly what happens. So I'm just wondering what we're thinking as far as come next Tuesday, what we may be looking at in terms of the fall season and how much of this place will go back to being a normal fall and how much of it will just keep summer rolling. The irony, of course, being that September is local season, and everybody thinks of it that way, that uh, we survived the summer and the crowds and everything so that we have September and we get the beaches to ourselves and we get perfect weather for a month. And uh, this time around, not so much. We're going to be sharing September as well, I'm I'm guessing. But uh, I don't know. It's so hard to tell. I think we're we're just in uncharted territory. And, And the other question is, whether it's going to be different this year and whether that portends that it's going to be different going forward. Um, Will this set a new standard that uh, we'll see more and more people staying through September? 
it strikes me that a lot of it's going to have to do with the schooling and what parents ultimately decide. Like, even though it's still summer here, I feel like it's, a, there's a little bit of an edge off because a lot of the college students have gone back to the towns where they go to college, even if they're online, a lot of them have chosen not to stay home to do their online learning. Um, but I think that the schools are going to be maybe the driver of how this fall progresses. I wonder if we have any thoughts on that. Well, I think that you're already seeing, and um, we have our reporter, Desiree Keegan, working on a piece about this for next week's paper, that the enrollment at some of the private schools out here, just like many of the public schools, is significant. Avenues, which was a Manhattan-based school that's going to be opening up its satellite location in East Hampton this fall, announced with the East Hampton Indoor Tennis Facility that they've been using in the interim, that they are actually going to partner with that facility for a second space because they've seen demand for their program be so high. Similarly, the Ross School in East Hampton, which has had its Bridgehampton Lower School campus on the market for some time, uh, is planning on keeping that campus open because they're also seeing demand. So I think that, you know, between that and the public schools, all seeing for the most part increases in enrollment, you know, in double digits that just says right there that people are choosing to stay here. Just one question too. I think it's about burgeoning enrollment, but it's also about the need for more space uh, for safe teaching in those classrooms, I'm guessing. Well, absolutely, because most schools are, you know, trying to adopt the six feet social distancing and masks. The other big complication is like with the schools in particular, how, you know, it's not been a one size fits all model. So I'm wondering, Georgie, from your perspective, because you're the parent in the room and you're also very tuned into the school districts, which schools do you think had the harder time of figuring this out and which ones maybe didn't have such a hard time dealing mm -hmm. with it? Desiree Keegan, who has been joining us um, writing education this week and is going to be with us um, moving forward, um, helping us out with that beat, she reached out to a number of school districts this week east of the canal. And, you know, in districts like Bridgehampton and Springs, these were districts that were already in the middle of huge construction projects because they were lacking classroom space. They are struggling to provide in-school education for a majority of their students simply because they just don't have the space. In school districts like East Hampton and Sag Harbor, they are able, at least for their younger learners, their K through eight learners, for the most part, able to provide in-school instruction five days a week and then are doing hybrid models for their older students. So you're definitely seeing if, if you had more space to work with, then you were able to provide a greater in-class education model. Now, again, what all of that looks like, we don't know how that's going to turn out. It could be a month from now, everybody's back to full-time remote education learning anyway. So there's a lot of question marks on how all of this goes. You know, in talking about districts that didn't have as tough a time, um, giant flashing light, we haven't confirmed this yet, but in our conversation uh, as part of our Southampton Village debate yesterday, uh, one of the candidates mentioned that Southampton School District actually has declining enrollment, unlike a lot of the other districts locally. That kind of makes sense if you think about it, because the families that would be relocating out here full time are not likely to be the types of families, if you can afford to live in Southampton School District, 
very high possibility you're sending your kids to private schools. So um, Southampton School District is going to face the challenges that all the districts face, but they're not going to see a, a giant influx of students. And again, I, we haven't confirmed those numbers, but at least anecdotally. From the reporting we did this week, it appears that parents and students who chose a remote learning option or a homeschooling option, the numbers weren't that high. I mean, I think they fluctuated between 10 and 20 percent um, in, in individual districts, um, which puts a little more burden on the, on the school districts, although that's a few students who, who aren't going to be contributing to that over-the-top enrollment. Well, I think that there are also some districts that are providing that you know, remote learning option for parents where you can choose to not send your child to an in-school program at all and they can do all of their education at home. And then there are other districts that just simply cannot offer that um, as an option. So that, you know, also impacts the number of parents choosing a remote only option. Um, Most of the parents that I've spoken to, especially with younger children, are interested in getting their kids back into school. I mean, pretty much every major medical organization has already come out saying these kids need to be in school if we can do this safely, um, that for mental health reasons, it's critical. Again, how this all works out, you know, will depend on how seriously the districts take these safety protocols. It looks like they're all taking it pretty seriously. Georgie, you're the one parent of two young children who is in this conversation. I'm curious, what goes into your thinking as far as do I want my kids back in school? Do I want to teach them at home? That's a complicated question for every single parent. With Springs School District, your options are a little different from what some parents have have faced, but I'm curious just for a point of view from a parent who's facing this decision, what kind of thoughts go go into that for you? I mean, I would like to preface this with, I consider myself fortunate. I've been working and so has my husband throughout the pandemic. And while that might pose challenges for me while I'm trying to get my kids through school at home, you know, I'm not a single parent who, you know, is really struggling financially. I'm also not a single parent working in healthcare or at grocery stores. I'm able to work at home because of the nature of what we do at the Express News Group. So I'm very lucky. I I mean, for me, having gone through the spring, my younger child who is going into first grade, he needs to be in school with a teacher if it's safe and possible. And I believe the way that it's being done, it is safe for him to return to spring school. I would prefer for him to be in school five days a week because as opposed to my older child, who is going into sixth grade, she can do a lot of her schoolwork when she's home on her own. Um, She's a self-starter. When you're dealing with a kindergartner, a first grader, a second grader, a third grader, you really have to have an educator sitting with them, walking them through all of their lessons. So it's a really different situation. Now I do have my mother-in-law who is older, lives in an apartment off of our house. So we are having a lot of conversations about safety as the kids go back to school. She's a very big part of their lives. But for the first few weeks that they're back at spring school, 
they won't be spending time together unless they're distanced and wearing masks just as a precaution. And I think a lot of families that have a multi-generational situation at home are probably having those same conversations or have family members that are immune compromised. Because again, we just don't know how this all plays out. I, I tend to be a glass half full person. So I'm my fingers are majorly crossed that this all goes well. But you know, there's just a lot of question marks. But am I afraid to send my children back to school? I'm not afraid to send my children back to school. They are gonna be wearing masks. There are things that I know I can do to protect my family. For example, when they get home from school, they are going to take their school clothes off and they are going to take their showers for the day and they are going to be using hand sanitizer. You know, we're having the conversations about how we can also contribute to school being able to remain reopened because it benefits us as well as working parents. And I hope a lot of families are having that conversation. You know, how do we contribute to the safety of this situation and not just put it all on the districts itself. So I think an interesting segue here to go from the schools is to talk now about with the influx of visitors who may be staying is the technology portion. A lot of people, a lot of demand, and now you're going to have kids going back to school who need to get online. So I'm just wondering, what are we thinking about how this influx of visitors, if they stay, may be affecting our infrastructure and things like Wi-Fi and other services? Any thoughts? You know, Optimum, during the height of the pandemic, was offering discounts to families for uh, Wi-Fi service at home and internet service. And I don't think they're continuing to offer that on an ongoing basis. Am I wrong? Does anybody know differently about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, and I also do think it's incumbent on school districts that know that they have like Wi-Fi deserts um, to work with families on how to help them be able to provide for their children's technology at home, not just in terms of um, making sure that all kids have access to Chromebooks and, and that kind of technology, um, which the districts really have a responsibility to do if they're asking children to work at home. Um, but again, make sure that they have access to strong Wi-Fi. Um, a lot of school districts are saying, your children will be graded on their work, whether they're doing it in school or out of school. And I just don't think from an equity standpoint, you can have that requirement and not ensure everybody has equal access to technology and service. It's interesting because Wi-Fi and cellular service has become part of our infrastructure and it needs to be part of the conversation going forward for local officials. It's time to address some of these issues. And, and I realize that Wi-Fi is much more of a sort of uh, private company provided utility, but it is a utility at this point. And, and the, the fact that we have so much learning at home just drives home that point that, that having, having good solid Wi-Fi and internet and cellular service is, is a big part of the conversation local officials need to have going forward, I think. I'm wondering about that and if it's going to be alleviated after Labor Day, right? We are going to see some people leave. It's not going to be everybody, but we're going to see a fair amount of people leave. And maybe when they stop putting strain on the cellular service and they stop putting strain on the internet service out here, 
maybe that results in our local school children whose parents can't afford to put in a hardwire fiber optic line. Uh, maybe those children benefit. Which, which brings up my question. It's like, you know, we've long had a monopoly out here with um, Optimum. And I'm just wondering if this will, this the, one of the bright sides might be, we'll maybe finally get some competition in here to offer their various levels of service and maybe a better price structure. I don't know. What do we, what do we think about the, the idea of competition coming to town? It's going to take a long time though, probably for a competing service to get uh, set up to do that. I would think, um, I think some of the areas out here uh, do have Fios. I think it's reaching, it's starting to reach its way out here as an option, but yeah, Optimum really does have sort of a monopoly uh, on the South Fork, I think. I could be wrong, but wasn't it? Fios isn't even in Brookings. Yeah, that's so Brendan, I was just going to bring that up. I mean, I thought that um, it ended at Brookhaven and it was like, Brookhaven basically is not allowing Fios to move oh, okay. forward to the East End. And it's a really big issue because like Annette said, it's a monopoly. And so, you know, at this point on the East End, you only have one option, um, which makes it more expensive. And it makes it when Optimum or Altice is not providing enough service, unless you have the finances to boost your service or pay for a greater service, you know, you're just kind of, you don't have any other choices. But Brendan, maybe you can speak to the whole Brookhaven situation. So back in 2015, Brookhaven Town Supervisor Ed Romaine had sent this letter to the state where he says, dozens of residents have contacted my office asking why the town of Brookhaven is preventing Verizon from having a franchise agreement allowing them to subscribe to Fios. The answer is simple. We aren't. For years, the town of Brookhaven has maintained that we would welcome Fios to submit an application for a franchise agreement. However, they have refused to commit to put the infrastructure in place that would provide this service for all of our residents. So Brookhaven says, it's not us, it's them. And if we're not getting Fios on the East End either, it's because Fios won't get started in Brookhaven first. You know, it's one of those things where there's conspiracy theories. It's like, well, if we don't have a competition to Optimum, Optimum must be uh, doing something to keep out the competitors. Uh, and it's just kind of what people say when they can't think of any other reason that might be above board for why they're not here. Like maybe maybe Fios just doesn't feel like it's worth their time and money to come in and, and try to sell their internet for less than Optimum selling it for. Maybe it's just not a great financial decision for them. But we do run into the issue that Files isn't going to skip over Brookhaven and then land on the South Fork or land on the North Fork. They are going to have to wire up Brookhaven before they come out this far east. And the free internet that Optimum slash Altice was offering to students at the beginning, when they brought that up in March, it was free for 60 days and it was 30 megabyte per second internet. I would say you're looking at 100 megabytes per second internet minimum if you're going to have a household with a working parent and one or two working students that 30 megabyte per second internet's not really going to cut it when you have parents on zoom meetings and kids streaming google classroom videos from their teachers i, I will say this i think it's a missed opportunity for local officials school officials town officials village officials all the way up to the county and, and the state to, to reach out to Optimum and make the case that you have a, a, a monopoly here 
you really have a, an obligation to address this problem since we're sending kids back to school, distance learning, and it's going to create an uneven playing field for a lot of families. And uh, I think that's a conversation that needs needs to be had with, with Optimum. I think that the offer that Optimum made during the pandemic was it something, it was, it was not nothing, it was at least some type of free service, but it clearly had a, a promotional aspect to try and get people into the system so that they would stay on the system as paying customers after that. I just think it's time to have a conversation about what might be expected from a utility that has a monopoly uh, in a time of crisis that they really should step up and provide some service uh, to, to, the, to the families that need it the most out here. I think it'll be the CEOs that will drive that because they're the ones that aren't going to put up with it and they're the ones who are going to probably make the demands that they can't conduct their business if they're staying out here in the fall. I just feel like we have to mention this because it's it's super convenient uh, for the Hamptons. The CEO of Altice has a place in East Hampton and I forget who told me but somebody told me that he got out here and realized how bad the internet was and he was like oh no Altice needs better service in the Hamptons. Well, that's why actually you saw um, Optimum hotspots develop on Main Street in East Hampton. I mean, this was many years ago, but it was because that CEO was like, well, I can't not have Wi-Fi on Main Street when I'm in East Hampton. Like, I want to have access to that. I have a really hard time believing that Verizon Fios doesn't think that the Hamptons is a worthwhile customer base. So, I mean, I think that that, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. And so that's why maybe you see people going towards that conspiracy theory that, you know, there's some sort of... <laughs> Um, sorry, my son, and this is the challenge that parents are facing, is making faces in our Zoom conversations. <laughs> I, I love it. He's doing the talking head thing, like we are, which I, which I really like. Um, he's just mouthing words, which, which is great. He's contributing. Charlie's as much a part of this as anybody. No, no, don't, don't mute yourself, Georgie. This needs to be part of the, the podcast. You, you, you're dealing with this. This is the conversation we're having. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Speaking of dealing with, are you guys hearing the leaf blowers that are going crazy in the background of my audio? Can't hear it, no. Okay, it's insane. But it's insane. But yeah. Okay. New neighbors, they're not leaving. <laughs> I, I think I've said this in other podcasts. I am really trying to actively avoid the us versus them conversation um, because I know a lot of people who, you know, around September 11th decided to make the East End their home that have been like really amazing contributing members of our communities, you know, and I think that there's an opportunity for that to happen with some families now as well, you know, where hopefully they are getting involved with local nonprofits, they are making decisions to shop locally instead of on Amazon. Hopefully they're volunteering if they have the ability to do so. I understand it's frustrating, especially in August when we're, we feel so inundated and probably this year tensions are higher 
more than most years, but I, I think that there's probably a lot of really wonderful families moving here who hopefully are going to support our local businesses and nonprofits. And so I, I try to push back against that, oh, you know, the summer people are staying, they're going to destroy our way of life. You look at groups like Save Sag Harbor and Sag Harbor Partnership. Obviously, my roots are at the Sag Harbor Express, so those are nonprofits that I can speak with a lot of authority about. And their membership and their boards, you know, a lot of that are homeowners who were second homeowners who became primary homeowners out here, love this place and want to try and support it. So I do think that there is already some of that that exists. And let's not let's not short sell Bill. Steve Ballone was talking this week about the idea of an extended season and how that will be crucial for a lot of the businesses that that really suffered uh, through the spring and summer. If they get an if they get a September that's anything like an August, that can be really beneficial. A absolutely, and I think not even just September. I mean October, November. December, which you, you've seen traditionally as kind of shoulder seasons where where people come out for weekends or, or whatever and help support local businesses. You see some sidewalk, you know, fairs and festivals and stuff. I, I think you'll see that, you know, throughout the week and, you know, um, throughout throughout the, the entire fall, maybe maybe for the next year. Who knows? Maybe, maybe forever. Like this is probably the, un the unexpected aspect of COVID. It's like there was I just remember the the fears that were so ingrained in March and April, and I don't know if anybody could have predicted that by the end of August that this place would be booming as it is, right? I think I think that's true, right? I mean, I I, I don't know. It's hard it's hard to speak with any authority to that, but well, home sales for sure are up, right, Brendan? Yeah, Brendan can speak to that. In the month of August 2020, uh, contract signings, which is different than a sale because it could take a few weeks or even a few. Uh, months for a signing to turn into a closed sale. But contract signings in August more than doubled from August 2019. And that follows July when sales or contract signings were up about 120 something percent. So we haven't seen this kind of real estate activity on the East End in a number of years. Uh, a lot of these houses had been sitting on the market. The inventory is very low. Real estate professionals that I spoke to this past week said that they expect inventory to pick back up again starting this month, September, because people who had rental agreements that ran through Labor Day are moving out, and now those owners are going to be able to put those houses on the market and show them. However, I think it would be, you know, ridiculous to not also point out that many local businesses have suffered significantly during COVID. And, you know, if you're a local restaurant, you might have a beautiful outdoor space, but you're not able to pack them in like you were in August and July and years past. Obviously, a lot of local shopkeepers struggled to open as early in the season as they would have wanted to and are trying to institute social distancing and mask policies. So, you know, I think with the exception of real estate and likely the construction industry as well, you know, businesses have struggled as a result of COVID, which is why it's more important than ever for us as a community to make decisions to support those businesses moving forward. Hopefully, a lot of those people that are coming in and, and, and buying those homes, and some of them, um, you know, perhaps it's an investment, but a lot of them, I think we're assuming, and anecdotally, we believe that a lot of them are 
new permanent residents, or at least, you know, new permanent residents for now. And, and we'll hopefully be supporting those restaurants and, and, and local businesses. I think that's the uptick to seeing the, you know, the, the increase in the real estate sales. Hopefully the, those people are going to be coming in and, and sticking around. And, you know, and that goes back to what Alone was saying last week, that hopefully these businesses can make up for what they lost in the spring and the summer in, in the fall and in winter. I don't know how you do outdoor dining in December, but you know, around here, sometimes December weekends aren't that bad. Bill, I think philosophically, permanent for now should be the phrase of 2020. Should I copyright that? Have we not learned that permanent is such an odd concept and it can change pretty much overnight? Permanent for now, in parentheses. You might want to get some t-shirts made. Permanent for now. You got to think that the, the limitations on the restaurants and the local businesses, if, if and, and we're all hoping and praying, if the numbers continue to stay down and, um, and, and we continue to do well with the COVID numbers, then, then those limits will, will increase a bit. They sent a press release out yesterday. They're opening up to casinos again. Jake's 58 is going to open up next week and and the casino in queens is going to open up again so i mean we we keep making those those steps forward and hopefully it's safe we still can't go to the movies no but but hopefully that'll that'll come back too i mean i I think you know the rest of the country the the numbers are up and down and certainly up in a lot of places but we we've been steadily doing pretty well here and and so it's it's all really hopeful i'm happy that drive-in movie theaters have come back how cool is that I saw the original Phantasm at a drive-in theater, and I still oh, I remember that. I still remember yeah. how terrifying it was. Uh, I saw that at the drive-in. Yeah, probably with a case of beer. <laughs> I was too young for a case of beer, actually. Yeah, I probably was too, but that didn't stop. <laughs> that was always the scary part about the drive-ins: is when the movie was over and everybody was starting their car and leaving, and you knew that half to three quarters of those drivers, my dad included, had had a few beers and, and he just wanted to make sure everybody got out safely. Oh my goodness. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. It's like, you know, all of those, all of those movie theaters had playgrounds and there'd be hundreds of kids before the movie started. And in the movie with the previews would start, all the kids would scramble and run back to their cars and there's still cars pulling in. So you have these like three-year-olds like running over aisles and aisles of cars and then none of them are higher than the doors. I noticed Amazon Prime has a show that is just drive-in movie advertisements. Yes. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. The hot dancing hot dog. Yep. I haven't actually watched it yet, but that's that's a that's clickbait right there. I know that the Hamptons Film Festival is doing their um, festival in a drive-in format partially, which is kind of cool. Because I wonder if anybody else will be continuing drive-ins into the fall. Well, once it gets too cold for people to be at the beaches it makes a lot of sense to turn those beach parking lots into drive-in movie theaters, which is something they do over the summer anyway, but then you can't start those movies until really late because it gets dark really late. When you start to do that in September, October, November, you could start those movies a lot earlier. You could even do two screenings in a night. That's kind of what killed the drive-in in the Midwest, especially like where I'm from, because um, once daylight savings time became the law in like the mid sixties, mid to late sixties, it started getting dark so late that the movie theaters realized that they could no longer, um, they couldn't really show family films because you couldn't literally start the movie until 10 o'clock. So um, they had to sort of shift. Some of them started doing all night movies and X-rated movies and 
that was kind of how the, they tried to survive. But in the end, it wasn't enough. They did X-rated movies at a drive-in? They did. It was right next to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So you just had these B-52 bombers. Those pilots must have been like, you know, coming in for landings. They were probably getting an eyeful, <laughs> you know. I miss drive. I miss drive-ins a lot. Definitely glad. Glad to see there's some some opportunities for that. Well, on the beaches, uh, in addition to the county executive's announcement that Bill mentioned earlier, that they are trying to encourage people to extend their season in the Hamptons and hopefully keep spending their money here. Countywide, also Nassau County, also New York State Parks, they're extending their fall season. They're extending those hours. I mean, we say fall. Fall. Um, Fall doesn't start after Labor Day weekend like we like to think, right? Fall starts September 22nd. But they're trying to extend the summer into the fall and lifeguard hours on Suffolk County beaches, including Machut in Hampton Bays and Cupsog in West Hampton, are going to have extended weekend hours with lifeguards because they do want people to have that part of summer that they lost back in May and June. I imagine the fishing intel is crucial right now and being very carefully guarded. And surfing. Surfing spots too. Surf, surfing and fishing spots, trying to keep those quiet is pro probably a, a significant part of this extended season. First rule of fish club is don't talk about fish club. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So anything else that we want to say? Enjoy what's supposed to be a beautiful weekend. Thanks for putting up with my situation. <laughs> no, we're not watching. Okay, bye guys. Bye Good guys. luck. Bye, Charlie. All right, y'all. Happy Tubbly Tuesday and Happy WTF Wednesday. We should put that on t-shirts. <laughs> yes. Or bumper stickers. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.